This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today, our special guest is award-winning rose breeder, Tom Carruth, who has created more than 150 rose varieties, including 11 All-America Rose Award selections. He is the curator of the famed Rose Collection at the Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Gardens in San Marino, California. And I'm Mary Elkins. The three-acre rose garden, which when you visit Los Angeles, you must see, was originally planted in 1908 for railroad tycoon Henry Huntington, and it has more than 4,000 rose bushes in it. Welcome, Tom. And is that correct, 4,000 rose bushes? Actually, that's an exaggeration that's gotten (laughs) proliferated. So uh, (laughs) it's about 2,500 rose bushes, which is plenty. That's a lot to keep track of. That's a big difference, but a lot. And we like to, we always like to get pruning time, especially. Yeah. (laughs) We like to ask our guests how they got started out and the paths they took that opened the doors to their careers. So can you tell our listeners about your upbringing and education? And if you had any mentors along the way? I was born in the Texas Panhandle, and I always tell people I got into plants because I could never have any as a child. (laughs) It's a godforsaken climate. Uh, But I loved flowers, especially early on as a kid. I was maybe five years old when I told my dad I wanted to work with flowers, Mm. and which kind of blew his mind. Um, He assumed that I could be nothing but a florist from that point forward and kept trying to say, well, why don't you try this or why don't you try that? Uh, but I stuck with it, and and by the age of 11, I had my first rose garden. I sold burpee seeds door-to-door to make enough money to buy this collection of roses wow. in order. And uh, then this in high school... Was, this was somewhere other than Texas? Your no, we were still in the pandemic you were doing at that it. point. Yes. Yeah, right, in that yeah. weather. In that weather. Um, then in high school, I fell in love with genetics. They just fascinated me and plant breeding seemed like the combination that I should go for. And rose breeding was the ideal, but there were very few rose breeders and they're even less now, Hmm. uh, that can make that as a career. But, uh, I went to Texas A&M for horticulture and for my plant breeding degree, my master's degree in plant breeding. And I would even ask my professors, uh, do you think I make a living breeding roses? And they would all laugh and pat me on the back and say, you can do that when you come home from your real job. <laughs> but I, I happened to be in the right place at the right time and came in the industry working for Jackson and Perkins Company. And their research facility was down in Tustin at that point. So I graduated with my master's degree and came 
straight out to California to begin working in the business. And that was in 1976. And you were actually getting to breed roses in your first career? I was with, I was with the research department, uh, but I wasn't really doing any hybridizing at Jackson Perkins. About three and a half years later, I got an offer from uh, Armstrong Nurseries, not Armstrong Garden Centers, but Armstrong Nurseries, the, the parent company, and was actually able to begin breeding it. Uh, roses at that point. And that was with uh, Jack Christensen, who was my boss, who was a well-known garden writer. Can you give us a little history of the Huntington Library and how your position there came about? Mr. Huntington bought the library in 1903, and it was a working California ranch. So it had citrus and avocados and, and uh, pineapple guavas in production. It was about a thousand acres. His family uh, made their money in the railroad business, his uncle, especially Collis. And uh, he loved California, but the rest of the family weren't too wild about it. But he came out here as a successful railroad man and then began to divest himself of his national railroad offerings and buy up all the local transportation companies, including the red car. Uh, he owned a great deal of property throughout Southern California and made a huge difference in Southern California history in a big way. So that's an ongoing and ever learning experience as to how much Henry influenced in Southern California. So he loved books. He loved art. And luckily, he loved plants. Uh, so he began collecting right away and planting. The Rose Garden was planted in 1908, as Mary said as a cutting garden for Mrs. Huntington. So some of the early gardens are the desert garden, uh, the jungle garden, uh, the palm garden. Henry loved palms and cactus and succulents. And maybe it wasn't just a passion. He, uh, you know, he had his wealthy peers in New York who all had their rose gardens and their camellia gardens and their fancy gardens, but none of them had a desert garden mm -hmm. because they couldn't do it. And none of them had a palm garden. So it was kind of his way to show them up to some extent. And then Arabella, uh, who would become his wife, uh, she loved roses and camellias. So those are some of our oldest collections. So Arabella was actually, this gets sorted. Oh, um, good. Arabella was actually his <laughs> uncle's second wife. Oh. oh. And uh, she was, before that, she was his mistress. Uh, mm -hmm. so when the she, uncle or Henry, the uncle. So when Collis passed away after he and Arabella had married, uh, it was fairly suddenly and unexpected. Then Arabella got two thirds of the fortune and Henry got one third. So it was a wedding of finance and convenience, mm -hmm. but it took him a while to convince her to marry him. And he, she didn't like the West coast. So during 1912, when she went on her European five or six month shopping spree, into, uh, he built the Japanese garden and that was there on her return. And it must have worked because then they married the following year and they were both 63 at that point. Oh, my goodness. Really? Mm -hmm. But they, they lived on site. They lived at the library gardens. She didn't they? stay as long. Henry would live more on site. She would come and go because she perceived herself as a New York socialite. Mm. Oh. So how did your position come about? Uh, the Rose Curator is, is really an endowed position. Uh, I 
been here about nine and a half years, but I've been associated with the Huntington as a volunteer since 1978. So I would come volunteer for the plant sales, and it's not because of my altruism. It's because I'm a plant sale freak, and I, I love collecting plants, and plant sale volunteers got first choice. So that was my motivation. Hmm. Uh, but I've seen the garden go through a lot as a result, uh, some lean times and some fat times. Uh, the Rose Garden, to me, always had a great deal of potential. And in 2011, toward the end of that year, we just got word that uh, one estate was giving $100 million specifically to the Huntington, designed especially for the gardens. I was coming toward my 25th year at Weeks Roses, and I thought, now might be the time to step in and really take advantage and step that garden up to where it should be and become my retirement job. That's in quotes, retirement job. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's how I came here. And, uh, and it's very, I, very full time right now. It, you know, it's mostly full time, but it's very satisfying. Uh, I'm out uh -huh. in the plants. I'm out with the people again. I'm not behind the computer. I'm not behind uh, answering to a bean counter. Uh, so it's, it was definitely the right move. Because yeah. mm. so the industry fabulous. was changing a lot, and it was a time to make a good move. That's great. But what is it about horticulture and breeding roses that appeals to you? I think just the excitement of the unknown. Really, oh. uh, when you breed two parents, you do not know what you're going to get. Mm. And uh, it's a very complex hybrid. It doesn't really perform to Mendel's genetics. It's a very primitive form of plant breeding. Uh, it's easiest to equate to having two parents and you can make that cross over and over and the children will have certain resemblance, but none of them will be exact copies hmm. of the others. And the same yeah. thing happens in roses. When you cross two parents, every seed is a unique individual. Hmm. And from those unique individuals, you then have to winnow it down to the best. So it's a 10-year process. Really? Wow. 10 so years. So that's multiplying and testing uh, for 10 years before you make the decision. So it, at Weeks Roses, we would hand pollinate about 43,000 flowers in a season with about 1,000 different uh, crosses. And from that, we would harvest a quarter of a million seed. About uh, 40% of that would germinate. And within the first year, we'd have it narrowed down to just 2% retention and so we had about 1500 to 2000 unique one-of-a-kind individuals and we had to start multiplying them up so each year we'd multiply a few more and a few more and each year we would get rid of more and more ugly ones and only keep the pretty ones uh so in the long There's run such after a thing as an years, ugly rose that, my thought is. exactly yes there is i, but only I tell people your... you can you can boil down my my profession is i force roses to have sex i take their children and i kill the ugly ones oh no <laughs> oh my goodness oh my oh. goodness <laughs> actually it's very therapeutic <laughs> after after 10 years uh we would introduce four varieties Mm. So, Tom, why crossbreed roses anyway? And, and when you do crossbreed them, what do you look for? Well, you're always looking for improvements. So we're looking for better disease resistance, a better vigor, very, better cold hardiness, more interesting fragrant combinations, more unusual colors, 
different habits, different usages like ground covers or vines or climbers or, or uh, miniatures. Uh, so the rose world is, is very diverse and continues to offer new types. Uh, it's been a beloved flower uh, for hundreds and thousands of years. So the Chinese were the first to grow roses in their garden and the first to hybridize roses. So they've been around a long time and there was uh, potential to be had and there still is. I can't even conceive of what it must entail, the note taking and the spreadsheets. Lots of details. Because how can you retain all that yeah. information? Lots of details. I, I had the fortune of knowing the great Herb Swam, who was a, a great American rose breeder in the uh, early 80s at the last part of his life. And computers were just kind of coming into being. And he said many times, oh, my God, I wish I'd had one of these, you know, in my career. Because of the record by hand. Yes. Oof. I'm yeah. sure for years you were doing it by hand, too, weren't you? There were, you know, there were bumps in the road and things that we learned along the way. But the computer certainly made a big difference for us. But it was still personal observation is the key and being able to see what potential a variety might have just from your observation. I would actually stand on the field rows that contained hundreds of varieties and kind of look down the row and see which ones called out my name. Huh. Oh, and that so you're a rose whisperer. Impression. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you must have to retain so many images in your mind from all these years of doing it because you can't look at a row of roses and then look them all up to see if one looks like what you've already got. Right. Right. That's correct. That's correct. Or, or the fragrances the same. Are all the fragrances different? Oh, there's a lot of different fragrances. And these are all natural fragrances. There's a uh, lemon blossom. There's fresh cut apple. There's licorice. There's really? all kinds of different fruits and different spices. There's the myrrh fragrance, which is very perfuming. And then the rose fragrance and different combinations of those. My goodness. What is your favorite fra fragrance? I really like spicy fragrances, personally, but uh, I'm, I'm not too picky. Hmm. Can you explain the process of crossbreeding roses in kind of simple terms for our sure. listeners? The rose flower is a, is a perfect flower, it's called, because it contains both male and female parts. So to crossbreed them, you had to control what pollen went on to what female. And to prevent it from pollinating itself, we would open the flower early and remove the anthers or the male portion of the flower and collect those for using perhaps on a different female. Then the next day, the female would be receptive. And this is all done in a greenhouse under control conditions. You can also do it outside, but then you have insects helping you with extracurricular pollination. <laughs> so in a greenhouse, we could control then. The following day, we would brush on the appropriate pollen and then mark the neck of the flower to show which father was used and then hope that it would set seed it would set its hips so the hip the rose hip is the fruit of the rose and it contains the seed mm. and they can contain from as few as two to as many as 80 seed in a hip uh, so those then were allowed to ripen and uh, then we would clean the seed again keeping them all separate by the parents and plant the seed after stratifying them in a refrigerator for eight weeks to simulate a winter and within uh, three months the little 
orange plants would start flowering in the greenhouse and you could start making your selections. So in, com in some cases, we never even let them flower because we would let fungus diseases sweep through the greenhouse. And if they were particularly prone, then they were dead. Huh. Oh, and then once they started flowering, we could judge the shape of the petal and uh, somewhat the color and somewhat the size, although they've changed with maturity over time. So, uh, uh, that's, that's part of the, the excitement to me is the, is when the babies come up and you don't know what you're going to see and you don't know what you're going to get. And you had a goal in mind or you wouldn't have made the cross. Now, whether it always fits that goal or not is another story. Now, florists generally are using basically sort of one type of uh, rose when they're doing their bouquets and you they know, have to the, all match and their long stems and all that. The cut flower industry uh, is selecting roses for a completely different criteria than we select in the garden rose industry. Mm -hmm. And that has been happening so long that it's almost like there are two different races of roses. What's the difference? Well, in the greenhouse inter industry, they're looking for bud shape. They're looking for stem length. They're looking for vase life. They don't really give a hoot about about disease resistance or what the overall habit is or what the finish color is. Uh, they do want it to rebloom quickly. Uh, so it's production, you know, it's a geared production. And most of this uh, production now is occurring in South America. Hmm. So they have to ship them long distances. So they're really judging strictly for shippability. And, and also in Holland, too, they have a big rose industry, right? Uh, actually, the Holland rose industry I... is under threat from oh. Af Africa and Israel. Oh, mm. Yeah, this used to be a big industry in the United States until the mid 1980s when imports killed it. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, one question, one last question on that topic, though. How do you tell the difference between a male and female rose? Uh, you look in the center of the flower, it contains both parts. So the male is usually around this circular center on the outside edge and it's often yellowish in color the female will be clustered together toward the middle of that center toward the very center of the flower sometimes it can be red tinted or green tinted it just depends but they they look differently too yeah but they all have both they right? all have both interesting so on, an, on another subject in a way but not many people know that roses actually have names what is the importance of naming roses and talk about the stories behind the names of a few, especially those of celebrities. So naming is critical, very critical to marketing. I mean, you spent eight years of your life looking at this variety to make sure it's the proper variety that deserves introduction. And if you put a bad name on it, you can kill it. Oh. And if you put a good name on it, you can carry a mediocre introduction. Hmm. So it is very difficult. Uh, it wasn't. A, a fun project i'll put it that way uh, because you had to pick something that number one people would remember when they went to the nursery to buy it number two that kind of typified something about the variety uh, number three that had not been trademarked or copyrighted and number four that really had not been used before for other roses because that becomes confusing so when there is a rose named for a person, that person or that person's family or estate have to give permission oh. to use that name. 
Mm-hmm. Can you give us some examples? Well, sometimes the celebrities are very involved with that, and sometimes they are not. Barbara Streisand was very involved. So she took about three years to make up her mind as to which rose would carry her name. And she grew all the choices that we gave her. Oh, uh, what, an, what does the case, Barbara Streisand rose look like? It's a dusty rose lavender color, uh, very fragrant. And she insists upon fragrance. And it's a hybrid tea. Mm-hmm. And of all the celebrities, she was the biggest booster of her variety. She loved it. And she put it on her CD cover. She had blossoms her bouquets cut and flown to her for her concerts. Uh, she has quite a planting in her home garden still, which she enjoys. And uh, it's, it's been a successful variety. And you've got, when I've been to the gardens, I've seen quite a, other, a few other big names. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell, it's exciting who you have in the garden. <laughs> it's kind of fun. We have fun with it too, because like we have Nancy and Ronald Reagan planted together. <laughs> But on the other side of Nancy, we've got Dick Clark. And on the other side of Ronnie, we've got Ginger Rogers. Oh, and don't um, you have a Jane Mansfield? There is no Jane Mansfield, but oh, there is not. There oh. is a Marilyn Monroe, and that's one of my Marilyn roses. Monroe. And that, uh, well, that's we, one of yours. That was a, a name that was, you know, within an estate. So we got, uh, we paid a, a minimal fee really to use it. It's a and yellow it's a rose, perfect right? Perfect name. It's it's a platinum blonde. It's oh. uh, a oh. creamy apricot color. It's it's a beauty. Ooh, yummy! And very and isn't there a Jackie flower. Kennedy rose too? There is not, which is there surprising. isn't. I'm no. bringing up names that there's no rose yet. <laughs> Let's and get And there one. are some celebrities Let's that have one. turned down the opportunity. Really? Oh, oh yeah. So Martha Stewart didn't happen. But Julia oh, maybe Child that's okay. did, right? Julia Child did, but for the longest time, we approached Julia to name a rose for her, and she would always say, oh, no, I'm, I'm not worthy of that. Oh. Um, but she had a friend, a friend of a friend, and their daughter still runs, <clears throat> excuse me, an unusual rose uh, business uh, in, Santa, in the Santa Barbara area where she grows roses outdoors and sells them to the local florist. So they're more fragrant. They're, you know, different styles. And so I would send her varieties, you know, one or two years ahead of introduction to see how they worked with her unusual business. So I had sent her this unnamed seedling and it was flying away when Julia came over to her parents' house because her parents were in the restaurant industry for dinner and they walked through the garden at night. And Julia said to her, you know, if there were ever to name a rose for me, that one would be nice. So I got a call the next morning and we went to work immediately on it. And I think if Julia had not been alive, the lawyers would not have allowed it to happen because her name has not been lent for any other usage. But she wanted this and she chose very well. Julia is probably going to be the top rose of my career. Oh, really? It's been a very successful international. It's an old-fashioned butter gold color Ooh. on a very nice rounded plant that just blooms its guts out. It's very clean, has a licorice candy fragrance. Mm. Uh, it's sold in the UK, in Czechoslovakia, in France, in South Africa, in Australia, in Japan, in New Zealand, and it carries other names. And that's not that uncommon in roses because. You might perceive one name as commercially good in the United States that could be a nightmare in Germany, let's say. 
so they will keep a nonsensical little name called the denomination and the trade names might change. So in, in England, it's not Julia Child. It's absolutely fabulous. Oh. And I love having the Ab Fab Rose. Um, in France, it's named for a licorice soda pop. In Czechoslovakia, it's named for a Czech, Czech actress. In South Africa, it's named for a petroleum company, which is kind of strange, but they have plants of it at every one of their filling stations, which is nice. In Australia, it's called Soulmate. And in, New, and in New Zealand, it's still absolutely fabulous. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to attempt the Japanese name. <laughs> but it's grown in the United States all over the place too, right? Yes. Yeah. It's still broadly available. But that would be, you'd ask for it by Julia As Child. Julia Child. Yeah. Yes. Oh, fabulous. What yeah. a yeah. great story. And she proved to be a very good parent, Rose, too. Actually, she's a better father than she is a mother. And, and what has she fathered and mothered? Oh, she has fathered uh, Sparkle and Shine, uh, Jump for Joy, Cinco de Mayo, uh, Doris Day. Wow. Uh, Doris Day. Mm-hmm. She has mothered Huntington's 100th, our Centennial Rose, which we brought out in 2019. And then other breeders, of course, have used her quite a bit, too. I can't even go into what they've provided out. It's, it's a major bloodline. Huh. That's amazing. Yeah. That they have these bloodlines. I mean, I know a little bit about breeding horses, mm-hmm. but this is my mm-hmm. first exposure to breeding roses. And a lot of people, you know, aren't even familiar with this happening at all. That's true. You know? yeah. yeah. I was not till I learned of you and the, and mm-hmm. went to the gardens and heard about this, but that's right. I wanted to hear about a little bit about the business of rose breeding and what's your advice to people who would want to get into the business is there you know there are there are a whole group of of amateur rose breeders who do it on a hobby basis mm-hmm. i can't even promise you that you might even get an introduction unless you introduce it yourself because you do need a commercial connection to a nursery to be able to carry forward the multiplication and the evaluation process and then finally the commercialization of the variety Uh, It does happen. It's not common. There are introductions and even award winners from amateur breeders. Uh, Mostly they're in it for the passion of it, uh, hooked by the same thing of seeing the babies and seeing what the combination may be. Uh, We would work with amateur breeders and evaluate their varieties when I was with Weeks, and we got two All-America winners out of it. Uh, One was St. Patrick, Hmm. which is a greenish yellow. Mm. And that was from an amateur breeder in, uh, um, not Riverside. Uh, there goes the name. Anyway, east of Los Angeles. He's now gone, but uh, he was just a personal friend through Roses. And he kept telling me, oh, I have this one seedling that looks pretty good. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to tell him, you know, that it's not commercially viable, uh, which is not always the easiest thing to, to tell People are passionate about their seedlings. And, and anyway, I finally visited after he guilt tripped me for a couple of years and it became St. Patrick. And he sent both of his granddaughters through college on the royalties. Really? Yeah. So it, it can be profitable. It can be profitable. It, it was more profitable when the nursery was industry was stronger than it is now. Mm-hmm. And when people shared things more because the profitability comes from the ability to patent the variety 
And this is something the United States did that was unique. It was in 1930 that we passed the, uh, the Plant Patent Act, and it allowed um, breeders to then collect royalties for their new varieties when other nurseries grew them under contract. Uh, so it made breeding of any plant uh, profitable. And roses were the first to jump on the bandwagon. In fact, the plant patent number one is a rose, and it's a rose that's still commercially available. It's called New Dawn. Uh, plant patent number 10 was rose, and it's still commercially available, and that's Blaze. Hmm. Uh, so now we're up to five digits on patent numbers. Roses don't dominate as much as they used to. They did well into the 1990s. Uh, but uh, just last year, I think it was July of 2020, they just released the first plant patent for a cannabis hybrid. Mm. That's very interesting. That is interesting. Well, what are the simplest roses to plant in different weather zones? And what's the best way to care for them as a it's, lay person? You know, as, as there's so much regional variation, you can't just generally say. The, the best thing you can do is go and visit your local public rose garden and see what's really growing well there for your climate. Uh, so I can give you things for Southern California quite easily, but it really doesn't apply across the board. And there's also a lot of climatic variation in the soils and the water and the time of water and the day length and the harshness of the winter. The American Rose Society has a pretty strong network through the out the United States and they offer a service area service. So if you call them, their office is in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, you can call them and say, I'd like to contact a consulting Rosarian in my area. And they have this series of, of, um, you know, well-qualified Rosarians who are there to help you answer questions about your microclimate. Wow. Interesting. Well, if how, what's the best way to care for them? Is there any universal way to care the for them? General thing is they love their sun. They need at least six hours of sun. They like deep soaking irrigation as well. Uh, you should fertilize them once or twice during the growing season. Which uh, is these, when? The uh, growing season depends upon the climate. You're in. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for us, we have a long growing season where they never really go dormant. We just prune them finally in January mm. and to, to show, slow them down and then start feeding again just about six weeks after your pruning process. But you don't want to feed too late into the winter because you want them to go to sleep, mm. especially in a cold climate where they need to be hardy. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it, it varies a lot. It's tough to say this is what you have to do, but those are some general rules. Uh, I often get the question of what roses grow in the shade, and the answer is none. <laughs> uh, so don't do that to yourself. It's like beating your head against a wall. It feels really good when you stop. <laughs> um, so, but people will say, oh, no, I can grow this in the shade or that in the shade. But really, it, they don't thrive in the shade. They will thrive in the sun. Yeah. And what would you say? are the greatest and most personally rewarding roses you have created? Well, Julia Child certainly yeah. uh, would be up amongst that group. I had a color breakthrough in my breeding career for a deep velvet purple color. Oh. And uh, those have done very well. So Ebb Tide and Twilight Zone are two of those. And, and what do uh, they smell like? Those? They smell of cloves. Oh, so that's, <laughs> you, that's your personal 
So the clove fragrance actually comes from Rosa Californica, the species California Rose, which is about six generations back in their breeding line. Mm -hmm. So then I also had on All-America winter a climber called uh, Fourth of July, and it's more single petal. It's got five to eight petals, but it's large flowered, and each petal is individually striped red and white. Oh, so the striping characteristic was a genetic character that was discovered and bred for by Ralph Moore, a wonderful California breeder who's now gone. He was in Visalia, California. He lived to be 103. Oh, and he spent 30 years of his life working on that striped gene to bring it into the modern rose today. That's amazing. People are so dedicated. Yes. Yeah. Plant people can be very passionate. And are you working on a new variety of rose? And what do you envision it to look and smell like? You know, when I came to the Huntington, I really retired from rose breeding. But because of the 10-year process, my varieties are still coming forward from Weeks, my old employer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I will have varieties well into 2024 right now. So two of the newest ones just for this year. Uh, One is called Golden Opportunity, and it's a large flowered apricot climber. Mm. And then the other is called Perfume Factory, and it's a, a sort of a mauvey magenta color, medium-sized flower, grandiflora with a great bush and blooms like crazy and fantastic fragrance. What do they yeah. smell like? If the one called Perfume Factory must be off the charts fragrant, right? It's yeah. a very nice combination of spice as well as lemon blossom and fruit. Mm. So... We have uh, some roses. It's fun to get people to smell roses in the garden. I mean, that's one thing we want to do in the garden is interact with our visitors and also especially with the children coming to the garden so we can get the next generation of gardeners. Mm -hmm. Uh, So smelling the roses and talking about the different fragrances are are kind of ways to hook them in. So we have one variety that smells like lemon pledge. Um, mm. so i <laughs> i told that to a group of second graders before covid and they all said what's lemon pledge yeah. so <laughs> i may have to find a new product uh we also have one that smells like pond's cold cream yeah. and, there's a uh, lot of people that wouldn't have any clue what that is you got it yeah that's right. but those who do always bring up grandma <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. that's true do you give tours to uh, to schools children oh we do a lot of education before COVID, we were bringing through as many as 5,000 students a month through the Huntington. So we have a whole, a huge education department. Gee. And I imagine you'll get back to that. Yes. In fact, just uh, yesterday, in fact, I was out in the garden and saw a whole group of, of little ones being led through the garden by their teacher. And uh, it was nice to see. And they smelled each flower. Uh, they were smelling along the way, but they were headed toward a different destination. So when they come to visit us, sometimes it's for the garden. Sometimes it's for the library. Sometimes it's for the art. Hmm. Yes, yes, of course. I, I, I once chaperoned my daughter's school class there. She's mm-hmm. 31 now. But when she was in elementary school, we went to several different places. And one of them was that. And I remember the kids really liked the Japanese garden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We make a lot of memories here. And you there's do a lot of history, you know, so people will commonly come in and say, mom brought me here when I was little, you know, back when it was free. I'm one of those. I remember my mother bringing me there with my sister as well. And we mm-hmm. would go to all the gardens and we would sit down and look at what was the red bridge in the Japanese garden. Yes. And yeah. I wish the Chinese garden had been there then, but now it's 
just fabulous. The Chinese garden is spectacular. It really, really is. But the roses, uh, there are no words to express how beautiful and, and and sweet they are. I hope that they give a lot of peace to people, especially in the garden and your soul unwinds. Yeah. And you can just be there with it. That's so true. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Our guest on Late Boomers has been award-winning rose breeder and curator of the Huntington Library's Rose Garden, Tom Carruth. Tom, is there anything you'd like to add before we close our podcast? Go plant a rose. Oh, I like that. that. I like that. Well, for all our listeners, please visit Instagram and Twitter to see photos of Tom's gorgeous roses and look for him on the Huntington Library's website, Huntington.org. Thank you again so much, Tom. Thank you. And when you search him on Instagram and Twitter, look for Tom Carruth Roses. Yeah. And thank you for being a guest today, Tom. Thanks. And for enlightening us on this very interesting career. Very. I appreciate the opportunity. And we want to invite our listeners to visit our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z, and let us know what you are enjoying about our podcast. Also, please follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and our Late Boomers Instagram also. We hope to serve, inspire, and entertain you. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Calling all speakers. E-Women Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. 
It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast 